How's everybody doing? All right, all right. Welcome to Uncle Scotchy Storytelling Extravaganza, ladies and gentlemen. For uh, those of you who just happen to be here, we do this every Wednesday night. We've been doing it actually close to a year. We started mid-pandemic, sneaky and scared and masked up. And uh, this will be our 36th uh, podcast episode in a row. Thank, thanks to Julio for uh, taking care of the sound, cleaning up the audio, making everything sound good. Thank you. Go to UncleScotchy.com for the Spotify link, and uh, you can go to that. Uh, uh, thank Breckenridge again. They need to start giving me more money. This is ridiculous. I'm pushing the shit out of them every week. I'm going to start not pronouncing their shit right. Brackarash. Um, if you guys are with friends telling stories to each other during the stories that are being told up here, please try to keep it to a considerate level because a lot of these stories are very personal and it takes a lot to tell them. So, uh, that's all I ask. Also, on account of a, something that happened with the, the fire marshal code, the outside is supposed to be closed. We're not supposed to have access to it, but it's become kind of a, a tradition in between the stories. Everybody comes down outside, takes a little smoke break, a little, little weed, a little chatting, a little heroin, whatever. And um, so basically it's gonna be uh, scotchy chaperoned uh, outside time in between the stories and then when it's time to go back in everybody has to come in just so you know that um but otherwise uh i'm happy to bring up our first storyteller ladies and gentlemen it's his first time doing this so give him a warm uh, round of applause orlando gonzalez ladies and gentlemen what's up guys we're doing all right Sorry about that. I feel like I have to do that because, like, all my training is stand-up, and I feel like I have to talk to the crowd, but I guess I can just go into a story, and that's very comforting. Um, this is a true story, <laughs> as it should be. Um, towards the later days of the pandemic, you know, uh, my wife and I were cooped up in the house. We were kind of depressed, and uh, sort of our generation, like we do with so many things, to seek out balance, right? And uh, one of the ways that we chose to do so was in the same way that we have in the past, which is we like to go out into nature, do a ton of drugs, and, and then try to forget about how terrible everything seemed to be. And we organized a trip uh, with another couple of friends of ours. And uh, if anybody here is married, I got to tell you, one of the best advices that I've ever gotten was find another couple that you can be best friends with. You as a man, you have a best friend as a man, and her as a woman has a best friend as a woman. Because if you take a long enough vacation, you will reach a point in which you just get sort of sick of each other, and you just need another person to talk shit to about the person that you're with. So in that sense, it's healthy. In the unhealthiness, you find, you find some health. So um, we organized this trip, and we decided to go to the Blue Ridge Mountains in Georgia. Beautiful place if you've never been there before. Highly recommend it. You can have, actually have a fairly cheap vacation there. For a couple of hundred bucks, you can get a cabin, stay there for four or five days, go out hiking, bring your own food. It's a really good time. We got in the car. We drove up to the Blue Ridge Mountains. We found our cabin, and uh, I'm a city boy, right? We rented a car. I don't really know how to drive in this sort of terrain. And uh, we just happened to rent the cabin that was in one of the highest mountains in the area. And getting up there, it was this, like, super hazardous terrain. 
I'm driving up there. I don't even know how to put the car in the correct gear. I'm just like terrified because it's a fucking ravine off to my left-hand side. And I'm just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. So we get all the way up to the mountain and, you know, the vacation begins. And the first couple of days when you go vacationing with anybody, it always has this like awkward period of getting to know each other, you know, getting acclimated to living with another person who you're not used to. But the first couple of days go by, and we finally get into the groove. We're getting along with each other. Things are going well. So we decide, well, third day in, we're having a good time. This is the day that we drop acid. It's not going to be weird anymore. We're getting along just fine. We found this beautiful lake um, about 15 miles off the cabin where we were staying. And it, it was almost in like right behind this private property. So you have this like five-mile trail that goes all around this beautiful, scenic, clear lake. And we take acid and we start doing this, this long five-mile hike. We're out there for four or five hours. It's by far the best day of that vacation and by far the best day that I've had in years. Like it was just like a super fun time. Like it was just beautiful and you know, and I'm on acid, so everything even seems even more beautiful, and, and I'm just elated, and I just feel like this intense joy and peace, uh, and I finally got what I was looking for, which was to completely forget about all the fucked up shit that seemed to be going on everywhere around me. Towards the end of the trip, now we're walking around for four or five hours. Has anybody done acid before? Just, all right, cool. So some of you have. Um, so, you know, when you get towards the end of the trip, you get into that introspective stage where you just start thinking about your own mortality. You get scared about it at first, and then you come and make peace with it again, and then you get sad again, and then you just don't want to talk to anybody because you're just really in your head, and everything seems weird, and there's monsters everywhere around you, and all those demons you've been hiding away from for the last 15 years that just seem to be chasing you, and then it's okay again because you started to smoke weed and drink a little bit, and then you managed to acclimate it. That was at the stage that I was at when we decided to get in the car and drive back to the cabin. On the way back, we decided, well, we don't have any food, so we should really try to stop and pick up some food. And, you know, when you're up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, it's a, it's a very rural community. Basically, the only place there where you can get any food or anything is at Walmart. So we stop at Walmart. I am driving, so I'm not getting out of the car. I'm already taking this bullet for the rest of us. It's a very dangerous thing to do. That is a lot of liability. I am very, very high and driving in very dangerous, winding mountain roads. Like, I have no business doing this, so I am not taking the responsibility of getting out and shopping. My friends get out, and they do the food shopping for us, and my wife and I are sitting there in the car talking about, reminiscing about this beautiful day that we've had. And we start realizing that we just made this strong transition from this beautiful, scenic nature trail to just smog and cars everywhere and this terrible parking lot. And almost as if to drive the point home, we see this old man uh, rolling his wife, his uh, overweight wife, who clearly was not able to walk into this car. And this man proceeds to struggle for about five to ten minutes, like a long five to 10 minutes to get her into the truck. And it was like one of these like sad images where you feel like you need to help, but at the same time you feel rude if you extend your help. Like maybe they didn't ask for it, they didn't know we were looking. And that should have been a sign of things to come. That this beautiful trip that we just had was coming to an end in such a dark and twisted and weird way. 
My friends come back and get into the car and we decide to drive back up to the mountain. Again, end of the trip, but I'm still very high. And now we got to go up this like terrible and terrifying mountain road. And it's steep and it's getting dark and I can barely see what's happening in front of me. And I know that just two feet to my left is ravine and mortality. So, but, but we managed to get all the way up there. It took way longer than it used to, but we managed to get all the way up to the cabin. Now, our cabin was positioned in such a way that to get to it, you have to take sort of a left turn. So part of the mountain was obstructing the view to the cabin. So you can't really see the cabin until you actually make that turn. But once I reach that turn and I know that it's coming, I feel relieved because I'm like, wow, I made it. Right? I'm high as fuck. I didn't kill everybody in this car. This is a success story. So I start making the turn, and as I do, I notice that right in front of our cabin, there's a rescue vehicle and three police cars parked, sort of angled in weird directions. The only way that you can park in a mountain road. That in itself is terrifying because we brought a lot of drugs with us. And I just assumed they found all of them. So my friend and I get out of the car. He happens to be an attorney, so I bring him with me everywhere I go. Actually, after he graduated high, uh, college, uh, law school, rather, he passed his bar. I gave him a dollar, and I told him, you're now a retainer. Whenever I need you, because I give you a lot of rides to and from school, you represent me. So whenever I find myself in a fucked up legal situation, I bring that guy along with me. So we get out of the car, and we start approaching the cabin, and one of the police officers approaches us. And we're like, well, officer, what's, what's going on? Why are you guys blocking our cabin? We're trying to get there. We rented this for vacation. They said, like, uh, listen, I'm really sorry to tell you, but there was a woman who lived just down the road. She was driving down right in front of your cabin, and she stopped her car, got out. She seemed to have died of a stroke and rolled all the way down to the front of your cabin. So we asked this officer, sir, you mean to tell us that there's a dead body right in front of our cabin? Should we go elsewhere? It's like, oh, no, you can stay. This is not a crime scene. We know exactly what happened. <laughs> sir, you mean to tell me that there's a body in front of our cabin, and we, have, we could stay there tonight? Yeah. Okay. We go back to the car. I tell my wife this. I tell my other friend this. And they looked at us in astonishment. But what were we going to do? We paid for this cabin. We're not that wealthy. We got to get our money's worth. So we go to the car and grab all the groceries that we can because we only want to make this one trip. I don't want to have to walk past the body twice. I'm walking past a dead body once. That I just told myself that from the go. So I go in the car, and I just do that classic man thing where you just put every single bag you possibly can on your wrists, and I just grab it. I'm like, all right, here we go. And just for some context, I've been lucky enough to have a cozy enough life to have never seen a dead body up to this moment, and it just so happened to be the day that I'm tripping on acid. So we start walking towards our cabin, and when they said that the dead body was in front of the cabin, they were not fucking around. 
That's the door to our cabin. That's where the dead body was. 15 feet. I counted it. This lady died and rolled down the hill and stopped 15 feet in front of the cabin we were vacationing at. So you can imagine, I have all these bags of groceries, and it's, it's a dirt road. It's not easy to get your footing. There's a dead body right there, and here I am with bags of Walmart bags filled with food, just trying to step around this body. <laughs> the absurdity of this moment. To think, we're here vacationing, and we bought all these groceries, and we're having a great time, and now I'm tiptoeing around a dead body. So we go inside the cabin. We actually make it in there, and we just let out this collective breath. Like just, whew, that's fucking weird, right? And here's something that I didn't realize, and it's an observation that I made at the time. It is a, it's a sad situation, right, objectively. Like somebody died, and that person probably had people who loved her. But this could have happened anywhere. This could have happened in Washington State. It could have happened in Oregon. It just so happened to happen right there, like right in front of me. And I was just debating the entire, am I supposed to feel bad? Like am I, is it, is it sad for me? Because people die all the time in way worse ways. This woman lived here in, her, in this mountain her entire life. If anything, it's kind of poetically beautiful that she just happened to die so close to where she lived in a relatively peaceful fashion. I mean, granted, the rolling wasn't. <laughs> so we sat there, and we just debated for a while. And you do this thing, like, if you ever found yourself in this situation, like, you get a stifle laughter because it's such an absurd situation to find yourself in. Right? Because, like, how often, how likely is that to happen? And then every time we were beginning to laugh, we just remembered, no, there's a dead body right there. We probably shouldn't be laughing. But an hour goes by, two hours goes by, and we're wondering, why is this taking so long? And then one of us had to go out and ask because we were trying to stay quiet. And we were getting hungry. Now, Hunger around a dead body, that's something that you only hear like morticians say. <laughs> but we didn't know this lady. I feel bad, but, you know, I'm hungry. Like, so I go outside, and, uh, and a cop approaches me, and I talk to her. And she's like, um, honestly, I've been here. I've been working in, these, uh, in this area for the last five years. Five years, and I've only had to be called up here three times. This is the first time that I've ever seen anybody die up here. It's just astonishing. He said, because we're so far up here, um, one, we need to wait for the priest to come over here and do her last rites. And second of all, we got to wait for all the emergency vehicles to clear out the area because it takes a very long time to get all the way down there. So I asked her, how long do you expect to be here? She said, I don't know, another four or five hours. Four or five hours, 15 feet away from a dead body. So we started cooking. <laughs> and in the middle of us cooking, we hear footsteps, because these are wooden cabins. They're not really well insulated. We hear footsteps 
and then the very clear sounds, the very clear and heart-wrenching wails of her husband who arrived and is now crying over his wife's dead body. We were making risotto. There's no stopping cooking. There's, there's smoke. There's smell everywhere. And all I could think was like, man, this guy must think that we are sociopaths. This woman died. He's having the worst day of his life. And 15 feet away from him, we're frying shit up. We continued to wait. We pulled out a board game and just like, quietly played, trying not to laugh, trying not, like, and I'm not saying I wasn't laughing because the situation, because I wasn't laughing at a dead body. It's just that nervous laughter that you get. You ever been to a funeral before? And it's just such an awkward experience that, like, your brain doesn't know what to do with all the input. So the only way that you can metabolize all the emotions that you're feeling is through laughter. I think that's partly why I do stand-up comedy it's just because there's so much dark shit in my past that this is the only way that I can work through it. And I feel like that's very much what I felt in that moment. Because just to think about the absurdity of us coming down from an acid trip and just being so close to a dead body and playing a game, ironically enough, called Pandemic. I don't quite know how to end this story, but I will say this. Uh, one, there's this thing that people do when something sad happens, even though it doesn't necessarily relate to them, where just because you're an empathetic person, you feel like you need to feel bad, right? Like, I felt bad that I didn't feel bad because I don't know this lady, and it's a tragic thing to happen. Second of all, I found it a bit ironic that in a time in my life in which I was seeking balance, right, I have one of the most lively and beautiful experiences that I've had in years, and it's punctuated by a corpse. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Get it for Orlando, ladies and gentlemen. Orlando Gonzalez. His story killed. <laughs> oh, thank you. Good timing. Give it up again for Orlando's uh, first story that he told here. I think he did a really good job. This next story tells, she told a really good one. We did a, a, a all-female story night called What's Her Story? She told a great story. And then she teased this one really well. So I'm looking forward to the butt story, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for Miss Shira Whites. Hi. All right, guys, this is the story about the time that I climbed to the top of a fucking pyramid. It was a very small pyramid. <laughs> like maybe when you think of a pyramid, you think of, you know, the great pyramids of Egypt, grand and ancient. Yeah, this wasn't that. Um, it was more like a statue of a pyramid, 
or even like a compilation of rocks that like sort of made a pyramid shape. Uh, it stood about 12 feet tall. It was in Joaquin Miller Park in Oakland, California. Uh, kind of right next to some picnic tables that my friends and I decided to watch the sunset at. And really just to like drive that point home. Uh, while we were at the picnic tables, this 10-year-old boy who was walking up with his family uh, saw the pyramid and in about 30 seconds just sort of shimmied to the top where he stood tall and posed for a photo for mom and dad uh, before shimmying right back down and, and running off with his family. Um, now, of course, I don't want to, like, give away my story, uh, but what I will say is fuck that little boy. <laughs> All right, some context. So I was there in Oakland uh, with my best friend and her now wife and um, my now ex-boyfriend. Um, we were visiting. I was on a 10-day vacation, a.k.a. like running from my life's problems. Um, I was living in hell, Los Angeles at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I, I had taken the first part of my trip. I visited family here in Florida. And then I flew to meet my boyfriend in Oakland for a wedding. And then we met up. The, the last leg of the journey was meeting up with my very best friends. And I was kind of torn. Um, I was, because I was joyful, because I was with the people in life who, like, I love the most. But I was also, like, fucked up. Like, I was exhausted, you know. I couldn't maintain a vacation mentality. Like, if anybody offered me a glass of wine, I'd vomit it in your face at that point. Um, but really, I just knew that soon I was going to have to go back and face the reality of my life. So, I was in a weird headspace, so I kind of just excused myself from the group. I, you know, slanked over, I don't know if that's a word, uh, slumped down to the bottom of the pyramid, you know, looked like a homeless person, oversized sweater, oversized sweatpants, uh, and I just kind of thought about my life. Now, earlier that summer, I had turned 30. Um, <laughs> and, like, you know, you have these milestones where you have to face shit. So what I was, where I was at, you know, I had always considered myself an actor. Uh, I, it was a childhood dream, and I pursued it. I went to an acting academy, and one of the first things they tell you, and the last things they tell you, and all the way in between, they really like to drive home this point, is that an overnight success takes 10 years, right? They're, like, trying to beat it in your brain so that anybody who isn't willing to put in the work, like, just get the fuck out, because it's tough. It's tough. Um, so, you know, when they told me that, I was young, I was 20. It felt like I had my whole life ahead of me. I was confident. Uh, but, you know, I was humble, too. Like, I was thinking about my 10-year goals, and I thought, you know, I don't need to be Natalie Portman in 10 years, right? But I could be, like, on my way to becoming Natalie Portman, you know? Um, there I was. Approach 30, time to measure up my expectations versus reality. And uh, I was not well on my way to becoming Natalie Portman. 
Um, I was not even well on my way to kind of sort of making a living off this acting thing. I was working as a nanny. And, you know, more than that, um, my stage fright was getting worse and worse. I was having panic attacks um, after auditions on a regular basis. And even more still, uh, it had begun to feel like uh, acting was feeding my ego rather than feeding my soul. So, you know, but this was, this was a childhood dream, right? But I was 30, I wasn't a child anymore. And I had to kind of face that reality, but it was tough because I didn't know who I was without that. It was part of, it felt like part of my identity. Um, and speaking of new identities, uh, turns out that at 30, your body decides to punish you for not being in your 20s anymore. It's real cute. Um, my body was like, it's time to get pregnant. I'm just gonna kind of grow your belly and then maybe you'll catch on and have a fucking baby. <laughs> Didn't work. Fuck you, body. Um, just kidding. I love my body. Uh, <laughs> okay, what was, where, where was I going with that? Okay, so, you know, as a normal person, as like a human person, especially as a woman, I have always struggled to love my body, right? Uh, but especially as an actor, right? And especially as an actor living in Los Angeles, it was a struggle. Um, even earlier on that vacation, you know, when I was visiting my family, I was visiting my oldest sister. And my oldest sister is like Rachel McAdams and Natalie Portman combined, but fucking hotter, okay? And I just always had the mentality like buried in me that if I had just looked a little bit more like her, maybe I would have been successful at this whole acting thing. Really fun thoughts, you guys. It was fun. Um, I, was, I was proud of one thing, though, uh, that I had recently, the year prior, begun to implement a meditation practice in my life. And it was something that I always wanted to do. And I finally was doing it. I had started small, first two-minute meditations. Then I did 21-day challenges, went up to 10, then 20 minutes. Um, and I really felt change coming from within. Desperately needed that change coming from within. And of course, with anything, when it starts to work, I was feeling you know, more connected to myself than I had been. And I can't remember how long. Um, and so I wanted to keep nurturing that. Um, so for the not so low price of $300, which by the way, was only given to me because they took pity on me uh, that I was broken 30, uh, they offered me a student discount. It turns out they don't offer your broken 30 discounts. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, so for the price of $300, I did this med three-day meditation course. Um, and essentially, it could have been done in three hours, but then they wouldn't be able to charge you $300 to $600. Um, I was a sucker. <laughs> anyway, um, they teach you this breathing exercise that they promise all these lovely things. It's going to change your life. It's going to change you as a human. And I wanted that. And then after the practice, they say, okay, you have to implement this for 40 days. That's the goal, 40 days. And I did. And this was a challenge because it was a stressful and intense meditation and breathing exercise. 
like, it had numbers. You had to count. That sucks. Who wants to count when you're meditating? Um, but, I, but I'm not just a little bitch, okay? Like, it, it was cycled heavy breathing. And I would get headaches. I would have, like, phantom yawning happening. Um, and my hands would actually seize up uh, when I was done with the practice. Like, I couldn't move my hands. I lost mobility. They were paralyzed in a weird position for like 10 to 15 minutes after, okay? So yeah, I'm not just a little wimp. It was hard. Um, so I still pushed through. I got to day 20, which was, you know, when I was home with my family in Florida. And on day 21, it's rough. It's a travel day. I had to wake up at five in the morning. I rushed on a plane. You can't do the meditation just to yourself because you have to ohm. You know, you need your like private little area. Um, so I get to L I get to Oakland. My boyfriend picks me up. We rush to the hotel. I have like 20 minutes to get ready for a wedding. We go to the wedding, get drunk, get high, come home, pass out drunk. Day 21, no meditation practice. And there at the bottom of the pyramid, it was day 23. That was 20 days on and three days with off, without the meditation practice, which I won't say the name because I don't want them to find me. Um, but I was feeling bad, okay? I had even failed at my meditation practice. The one thing that was supposed to, you know, bring me optimism and positivity and I somehow managed to feel like I failed at that. So there I was just thinking, like, I, maybe I'm just not good enough. You know, maybe I'm not talented enough. Maybe I'm not beautiful enough. Maybe I'm not dedicated enough to accomplish my life's dreams or anything. So that was my headspace. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun times. Um, my friends come like moseying on up. So I stand up. I'm like, all right, um, trying to act normal. And it's funny because I don't like remember saying it. I just remember hearing myself say, like, I'm going to climb to the top of the pyramid. <laughs> and my, my boyfriend at the time, um, you know, was like, yeah, do it. Now, he is like a mountain climber, okay? He loves to rock climb and all that high risk, high reward shit. Me, not so much. Don't love failing, don't love possibility of getting hurt. You know, I'm sure that's all contributed to my less than ideal circumstances. Um, but I'm like, all right, I'm gonna go for it. So I do, and I like one foot up, <laughs> I'm like, it's already more difficult than I thought it was gonna be. I'm like, eh okay, maybe not. And then my boyfriend's like, okay, now put this hand there, that foot here. Okay, now that hand there, this foot here, blah, blah, blah. I'm crying. I, I, I'm at now four feet up, five feet up. And it's getting a little scarier now, okay? Um, the voices are coming back in my mind also, and I'm feeling weak in my body. I'm feeling disconnected. I'm remembering this. I'm disconnected. I'm weak. I'm incapable of achieving anything in life, including getting to the top of this pyramid. I'm like, I give up. I want to come down. And he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to help you. 
And the only thing that I could do is like launch back into his arms because this is the shape of a fucking pyramid, you guys, okay? If I were to try, I didn't have the leverage to like jump off. If I did, I would have made it a foot before like tumbling down the rest. Um, so I'm like, oh, fuck you. And uh, my adrenaline and my anger are taking over and, but it's fueling me, right? I'm like, okay, well, fuck, I'm gonna find my footing here on my own and this footing and that and that hand and now I'm like eight feet up and and I am pissed and my body is like more tired now too um and I am just having rageful thoughts about my ex yeah he's now I'm calling him my ex now <laughs> no longer my boyfriend um I have anger and everything is that I'm feeling toward myself I'm directing at him and I am coming up with every excuse I can to get down I'm like I'm not having fun anymore okay my whole body is weak and I just I don't want to do this and you should know more than anybody else that the descent is gonna suck the worst like fuck you I can't do it and he's like okay we'll go you know you got this, you got this. He's just really annoyingly encouraging me. So, so I go to foot nine, I'm at 10, 11, and I can see it's the top and I just cling to the top where he promised me was a nice little seat, but really it's just like this rounded stone. And my entire body is fucking shaking. I am stuck and I let him know. I'm like, just for your information, I am fucking exhausted. I am stuck here. I can't get up the rest of the way. And by the way, this isn't a fucking seat. And uh, he's just like hanging off it beside me with one arm and one leg like a goddamn monkey. By the way, I'm like, oh, you asshole. So at this point, I remember, like, my friends are here. They'll have my back. You know, like, they're going to understand how pissed off I am. They're going to understand, why is my boyfriend pushing me like that? Why is he forcing me to do something I don't want to do? So I search for my friends at the bottom of the pyramid, and there they are, cracking the fuck up and filming me with their goddamn iPhones taking selfies with me in the background. <sighs> yeah, I was, uh... well, you know what? All of a sudden, I just realized like how ridiculous this must look. And then I also realized how ridiculous it actually was. And there was just, it introduced this entirely new perspective um, of lightheartedness, of silliness, and tears just start streaming down my face. I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm crying because of how ridiculous it is, of how embarrassed I am, but whatever it was, it gave me the last push that I needed to shimmy the rest of myself up to the top of the pyramid and straddle the not seat. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was a positive motivation and I'm up there and my boyfriend's still hanging on and he's like, all right, scoot over. I'm going to sit on this with you. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? But I let him because you know what? He was shaking too from hanging on the side and making sure I felt safe and supported. So fuck that little 10 year old boy, by the way, it wasn't as easy as all that. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I share the seat, and you know, for a few long minutes, we uh, we watch the sun go down, and then I am more than ready for my descent. Um, especially because at that point, I sort of felt like no matter what challenge it was, I would rise to the occasion. Um, I want to take a second to say, by the way, I just posted before I got on stage the pictures that my friends took uh, on Instagram. I tagged Uncle Scotchy. Um, so if you want, after the story, you can either find me on Instagram at Shira Hannah or just look at Uncle Scotchy's page and you'll get to see the all the humiliation. Um, okay, so guys, it's been three years since that happened and um, since the incident. Um, I now um, am in a healthy relationship with myself. Thank you. I live in a place that I love to call home, Miami. And I am a stand-up comic. And every time I get on that fucking stage, I'm climbing to the top of a fucking pyramid. Thank you guys so much. Give it up for Uncle Scotchy. Give it up for the great Sheer Weiss, ladies and gentlemen. Don't worry about it, baby. I'm still trying to beat Natalie Portman. It's taking a long time. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to get it. We're halfway through this. We've got two more storytellers coming up that, uh, that need your love, ladies and gentlemen. I know there's a lot to discuss. Um, but uh, we're all here for something. And uh, uh, this guy, uh, you were on the first one that we recorded, our first podcast that we recorded, and he was videoed. Hair's a little longer, look a little more handsome now. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the very Cuban, Jack Norris. Here. Hey, what's up? It's me, Cuban Jack. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm incredibly white, uh, if you couldn't tell. I'm so white, my parents just clapped two chalkboard erasers together and like wished really hard that the dust would become a real boy. Um, viva, viva Cuba, though. That was some fucking dope shit that just happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, it's good to be back. Uh, I love this place. I, I even just like hanging out here, you know, not even performing. Because this is one of the only bars that has just like a fully functional aquarium over here. You can just go kind of jam with the fish when you're, when you're feeling blue. And I think more bars should have that. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, I, I like... I like fish a lot. You could probably tell by like my $3 thrift store uh, tropical shirt. I look like a clown, fuck this pro skateboarder. Um, <laughs> but I really like fish. I really like the ocean in general. Uh, for as long as I can remember, I've thought that fish deserve more rights than people. Uh, I just, I think land dwelling is lame. I don't get why people want to live on land. I wish that I had gills and just swam around all day. You know, like it seems like a much better life. Uh, and growing up in Miami kind of helped that. You know, there's always an ocean. You know, you could throw a rock, hit an ocean. Um, I'm, I'm constantly grateful I didn't grow up in some place like Ohio. Uh, you know, they just have cows to look at all day, which, like, what a fucking dumb animal. Uh, you know, they're not even colorful. They're just black and white, like the two most boring colors. You know, they, they just eat grass and shit all day. You tip them over, they can't get back up. They're stupid. I'm glad we eat them. 
I'm fucking glad. I think we should eat them more. Uh, yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I've, I've uh, always been drawn to the ocean. And my dad was too. You know, my dad grew up uh, sailing and fishing, you know, and he wanted the same life for his kids, you know. Uh, so he, he always, like, kept us really experienced in that. And I remember, you know, when I was four years old, my dad took me fishing for the first time, right? We walked down to this bay down the street from my house, um, we cast our lines out, you know, I was fucking stoked, we got up really early, and after a while, we reeled in probably one of the biggest fish I've ever seen, and I don't want to, like, exaggerate, like, a fisherman exaggerating his catch, or, like, me exaggerating my height on Tinder, you know, like, I'm 5'11 on Tinder, I'm six foot, uh, you know, I'm six foot in real life, that's not true, um, but they don't have to know that, but, uh, eventually we reel in this fish, and I found out it was called a Jack Creval. And I was fucking stoked, because, like, Jack's my name, you know? Me and this fish, we got, we got something in common. And this, he, was a, he was a gigantic fucker. Up until this point, I'd only seen, like, the little tiny freshwater fish in my aquarium. So instantly, I was just, like, enamored with this dude, you know? So I turned to my dad, and I'm like, hey, can we keep him? And he's like, like, you want to eat him? I'm like, no, 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 can we keep him as a pet? And my dad must have seen, like, the twinkle in my eye uh, and didn't want to disappoint me. Here's why I think uh, he did what he did. Kids are fucking stupid, right? Like, I'm 25 years old, and I'm still dumb. So you can imagine how fucking smooth-brained I was when I was four. So my dad told me, you know, yeah, if we, if we put him in the bucket, as long as he's touching the water, he'll be okay. You know, like that, that, like that Nazi fish from American Dad. You know, like, as long as he's touching the water, he can breathe, he'll be okay. And I just believed him, you know? This fish was, was dead not even 10 minutes into our walk home, you know? And when I asked my dad about it, he was like, oh, well, you know, he's, he's just sleeping. He's very tired. He put up a really good fight. And I didn't question it because, again, fucking smooth brain. Um, and every morning, you know, I named him Jack Jr., uh, which I later, I, I later named my penis after him. Um, not as big as the fish, if you can believe it. <laughs> But every morning, you know, this bucket would be sitting in the driveway, and I would go out, and I would say hi to him. I'd be like, hey, Jack Jr., how you going? And he, like, wouldn't say anything. And he'd be like, oh, I guess you're pretty sleepy, huh? I'll talk to you later. And then I'd walk to school. And I think my dad told the neighbors, uh, I think he talked to them and, and, you know, told them what was up, because none of them questioned the rotting fish carcass that was now my best friend. <laughs> But eventually, you know, the flies sort of descended on Jack Jr.'s festering corpse. And my mom got sick of it and was like, you need to get rid of it. So my dad decided to fess up, you know. So he sat me down and he was like, son, Jack Jr. left to go be with his family, his fish family. Uh, he wanted me to tell you that he loves you very much and that you should stop playing your Game Boy so much and make some real friends. Which, like, fuck that, because Pokemon Crystal just came out, and that game's the shit. Am I right? Yeah, one guy. All right. <laughs> fuck yeah. This did not seem like a Pokemon crowd, but I'm glad I got one. Um, I'm just kidding. He, he actually just told me that the fish was dead and had been dead the whole time. So naturally, I started crying. And then I cried some more. And then we had a burial at sea so that I'd feel a little bit better. But then all the other fish in the ocean started eating his eyeballs, and I cried even harder. And my dad learned a powerful lesson that day. And that lesson was, if I'm going to lie to my kids, I need to fucking commit next time. 
So flash forward a few years, right? I'm like eight or nine years old at this point. And after a moderately fulfilling life, the last two fish in my aquarium pass away while I'm at school. And traditionally, when one of our pets would die, we would bury it in the front yard, you know, so that it could be part of, you know, part of our home, you know, and give back to the trees that are growing in our yard and stuff. Just very symbolic. My dad's not sentimental like that, so he just flushed those fuckers down the toilet. Yeah. Uh, and I got home from school, and I found out, and I was, I was fucking devastated. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that, that my dad would, would just, you know, callously flush these two fish who I loved, you know, like my own children. I don't remember what their names were or what kind of fish they were, but I did love them. And so I started crying again, and my dad's like, ah, this, this bullshit again. And he remembered his lesson from last time, that he needs to commit to his lie. So he leaves the house for an entire day, right? Says he's busy. I don't hear from him for a whole day. He comes back the next day, and he's like, Jack, come outside. I want to show you something. He takes me outside, and there's two tiny little fish graves in my front yard. And I'm like, how did you, like, what, what did you do? And he's like, well, I, I knew how upset you were, so I took my sailboat out, and I, you know, I searched all over. For these, for these fish corpses. And he made, it sound like, he made it sound like it was a real pain in the ass for him, which I didn't appreciate. You know, he was like, I searched for hours. I searched for hours, and, I, and just when I was about to give up, I spotted in the corner of my eye two delicate little fish corpses, and I scooped them up, and I brought them back because I know how much they meant to you. And I fucking believed them again. I'm like, I'm four years older at this point. I'm getting straight A's. I'm on the fucking principal's honor roll. And I believe that my dad just took his sailboat out and scoured the entire ocean to find two freshwater fish corpses that were somehow still intact 24 hours after being flushed. You know, they tested me for the gifted program. And I got in. Like, I'm starting to think that, that the word gifted just means socially awkward dipshit who reads really good because what a fucking idiot. Oh, my God. But after these experiences, you know, the Jack Jr. thing, my, my poor little dead fish whose names I don't remember, my children, uh, I, I realized I could never let a fish down again, you know? And Finding Nemo came out, so it was a really rough time for me. You know, fish are friends, not food. So I made, a, I made a vow that, you know, every time I would go fishing, I would throw back whatever I caught. You know, I was a catch-and-release guy through and through every time I went fishing. My friends who ate fish despised me. You know, my uh, ch uh, fucking charter boat captains plotted my assassination, but I didn't care because I really, you know, fish are my friends and I could not let them down again. So I'm 12 years old now and I get invited on a fishing trip with my dad and my uncle Kenny. Now my uncle Kenny is kind of your typical man's man, you know? He's, uh, he lives on the side of a mountain with nobody but his two dogs and his wife in that order. He's got Obama toilet paper in his bathroom, like still. And he likes guns and, and killing stuff, you know? So he's a pretty manly guy, sort of different from me and my dad's vibe. But I was really excited because I'd never, we, we went fishing in the Everglades. I'd never been to the Everglades before. And my uncle inviting me on this trip means he no longer thought I was a Nancy boy. Like he called me when I cried after getting bit by my cat's cousin that one time. Just meant, it's just, you know, I was, I was glad he didn't think I was a Nancy boy. Um, 
So, you know, we met up, we got dinner, and then my dad and uncle said some derogatory things about uh, women in our family, and I laughed uncomfortably so I could be part of the group. And, and then we went fishing the next day. And it was great. We caught, you know, a ton of fish. And my uncle was keeping all the fish that he caught so that he could cook them later. And I was fine with that. You know, I, I, it, it's, that was the main point of the trip. And I agreed to go along as, as long as I was allowed to throw back whatever I caught. You know, it seems like a fair thing. I can't tell my uncle what to do with his fish. He can't tell me what to do with mine. So we catch a lot of fish. Uh, the main fish that we were catching was this, this fish called a spotted sea trout. Just a, a beautiful, looks like a Dalmatian if it was just a fish. It's got all the fucking spots and everything. Beautiful, beautiful fish. Love to give him a little kiss on his fish lips. Um, <laughs> it's getting weird. Uh, <laughs> but we're fishing, and I end up catching the biggest one of the day. He's, he's a fucking gigantic dude, and, you know, my dad and my uncle are cheering me on, and I feel rad as fuck. And then my uncle unhooks the fish and starts walking towards the cooler, and I'm like, hey, hold on. What are you doing? And he's like, well, you got the biggest catch of the day. He's going to taste great. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, that's my fish. He's going back in the water. And he's like, are you kidding me? You're, we, you caught a fish this big, and you want to throw it back? And I'm just in my head like, yeah, bitch, that's my fish. Like, catch your own if you want to fucking cook them. I know you've got plenty in that cooler over there. What the fuck? My fish, my rules. You know, unless you're 12 years old, because then your uncle can overrule you because he's bigger and stronger than you. And, like, toxic masculinity and shit. You know, my uncle invented that shit. So I'm lobbying for this fish's life as hard as I can. I mean, I'm, I'm fighting harder than a pro-lifer outside of Planned Parenthood. Because I got to act fast. I got to act fast. You know, this fish is about to get sort of, like, you know, almost aborted right before my very eyes. He's gasping for air. And my uncle's just not going for it, you know? And so I turned to my dad. You know, one last desperate plea, right? I'm, I'm like, he's a lawyer. He'll back me up if I plead my case. I'm like, I'm like, father. I approach the bench, which is just the stern of the boat. And I'm like, father, I caught this fish. It's my fish. I decide what happens to it. I understand that Kenny wants to cook it because it's large. But he's got plenty of fish. He can feed himself for like three more nights off those fish. This one needs to be thrown back. This is some hardcore bullshit, dad. Help me out, my G. And my dad stood up full of confidence in his son, proud that I was standing up to my uncle. And he walked up to my uncle and he was like, hey, you need to throw that fish back. And Kenny was like, fuck off, Jack. And he put the fish in the cooler. And that was the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Later, my dad would, would tell my mom, you know, I'm really proud of Jack for standing up to Kenny in that situation. And then my mom would be like, what, well, what happened? And he'd be like, we ate the fish. <laughs> what? We, we ate the fish. We put it in our, we put it in our mouths and we ate it. Um, so yeah, I cried the rest of the weekend. A lot of crying in the story. Uh, the, 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 my fish was the centerpiece of the family dinner. Uh, and my uncle called me a Nancy boy again. A couple times. Um, which I guess is nice since I'm here, you know. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather be a Nancy boy. My uncle can go fuck himself. We don't really talk anymore. Uh, that's when I, it's also when I realized I don't really vibe with conservatives that much. Like, <laughs> but, you know, people look at me weird uh, when I say that I don't eat seafood, you know? They're like, they're like, that doesn't make any sense. And it is weird. I get it. I eat, I eat all the other kinds of meat, so it is hypocritical. 
Um, you know, I'm sure there's seafood that I've, that I've never had that I would probably like. I hear sushi is what the kids are into these days. But I just, I, every time I look at a fish, you know, I see Jack Jr. I see, I see that trout I couldn't save. I see all the fish I ever owned as, as pets, you know, and I'm just like, I, these are my friends. I can't justify putting them in my mouth hole, you know? And the ocean is a beautiful place, you know? It, 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 it's the reason we're all alive. That's where life started. God's not real. Uh, go fuck yourself if you're religious. It's not true. It all started in the ocean. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, if you, if, you, if you stop and you look at a fish for a while, you'll find there's a lot more to them than you think. Certainly more than those black and white hamburgers on four legs. Fuck those idiot cows, man. You guys want to get some burgers after this? Yeah. Fuck yeah. I'm not even hungry. I'm not even hungry. I just want less cows in the world. Thank you guys. You've been fantastic. This is great. Give it up for your host, Scotchy. So fuck my shirt, huh? So fuck my shirt, huh? Let's get it for Jack. I almost wore that shirt tonight. That would have been fucking awkward as shit. We've been like a fucking story kaleidoscope, him and I together. Ladies and gentlemen, either way, I appreciate you guys coming out and listening to storytelling on a Wednesday night when there's a fucking revolution on 8th Street. And I get all kinds of different friends here from around and new friends I haven't even met yet. Even Tony came out. Jesus Christ. And uh, we got our last storyteller tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's been telling a lot of stories up here. He's here whether he's telling a story or not. He's become addicted to the whole storytelling process. Um... He's a great dude, and um, I'm looking forward to his story. Um, you guys, uh, uh, check out the link to the podcast if you can, UncleScotchy.com. And if you can, find me, uh, Uncle Scotchy, uh, on, on Instagram. I'm, I'm doing some... Uh, Scotchy! Thank you. Scotchy's dog needs help. Scotchy's dog, I, my, my, my little dog, I just saw that dog, and... Um, my dog's really fucked up. She can't walk on her back leg, and I need to raise some money. So um, go on my Instagram, and if you can, just donate five, ten bucks, whatever you can. Uh, I really need to. Um, I, I can't watch her walk around like that anymore. So if you guys can give me a little bit, the the links to my Venmo and all that are on there. I'd really appreciate it um, very much. Little Casey, little Casey needs help. It's not her fault. She's just a little crazy, bow-legged pit. But. Um, Back to storytelling, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this has been a really cool experience. Uh, it's really cool how many people I've met through this and starting it in the middle of the pandemic and everybody was freaked out and they were scared to even open their doors. And this has been going on about a year. And uh, it's crazy. And I like the way it's developed and just life is kind of funny. And this has been a cool thing. So thanks to all the new friends I made through the storytelling. It's kind of crazy. I never would have met this fucking guy. And uh, I have, and I'm proud to call him a friend, ladies and gentlemen. Robert and I, come up and tell your story, buddy. You sappy motherfucker. <laughs> Cheers, guys, to another, another wonderful Wednesday here at Bar Nancy for Uncle Scotchy Storytelling Stravaganza. I fucking love it here. 
So, <laughs> I love y'all too. Um, so tonight I'm telling y'all a love story. And it's actually the story of my first love. But before I continue, um, as a Mexican and as a very proud Mexican who really cares about my people, and I'm going to tell a love story, let me just say that what I saw outside just a couple of, like, 30 minutes ago, is one of the purest acts of love I've seen firsthand. And I feel for you, the Cuban people. And I hope that, I hope that we find the best solution to all of this. So just wanted to say that real quick. So this is a story about my first love. I was 15, young and stupid, which is usually the combination that goes along with that age. And I was going out to a quinceañera. Now, if you all don't know, a quinceañera is just a celebration that you know, most Latin countries have for when a woman turns 15 and they throw this big party. Especially in Mexico, they, they really go all out. So, no, it's, it's really fun. <laughs> so I went out to one of these quinceañeras and there was with one of my best friends at the time when I saw this girl on the dance floor. And it was the first time in my life that I looked at a girl and I told myself, I cannot leave this room without knowing her name. And that was, as a man, that was really powerful. It was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. I didn't, I was a virgin. I didn't know like what the fuck love was. Like, I never even touched a woman, but for some reason, something about her was so chaotic and magical that I was just like, I need to know her name. And in a sudden act of brazenness, I looked over at my friend Pepe, <laughs> a real Mexican name, right? <laughs> a Pepe. <laughs> I looked over at Pepe and I was like, she has a friend, there's two of them, there's two of us. Let's fucking go. And I don't know if it was like the confidence which I said it in, or if it was just, I don't know, he was also entranced by her friend, but he, he looked at me, he's like, okay. And so we went off, and we asked them to dance. And there I was, not knowing how the fuck to dance, because I don't know if you know this, but Mexicans are the only fucking Latin culture that can't fucking dance. <laughs> I learned this the fucking hard way here in Miami. Like, we have our own dances, like... But, like, y'all don't do that here at all. But again, I was just so fucking entranced by this girl that I was like, I do not care. I'm going to try my best. So we go up to them, and by God's good graces, they say yes. And we start dancing. And it's actually a lot of fucking fun because they're 15 too, so they don't know what the fuck fencing is, like dancing is either, you know? But we're just, you know, going along to rhythm. But it turned into one of the most, like, Disney-like fucking moments of my life. Because, like, I just met this girl, we were dancing, I got to know her, and, like, towards the end, she, like, had to make, like, a quick Cinderella escape, like, her parents were here, there, and she had to, like, she wasn't supposed to have a boyfriend, you know, Mexican traditionalism and shit. And so, as she was, like, running away to, like, you know, make sure her parents didn't see, thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers. I needed that. Um, now, and as she was running away, 
she looks back at me and I tell her like, well, I see you again. And she's like, yeah, I think so. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I promise I'm gonna see you again. And she left and I had no fucking clue who she was. <laughs> but I had just made a promise. And so they leave and I'm dumbfounded for the rest of like the fucking year. No, I'm just kidding. I'm dumbfounded for like the rest of like the night. I'm just like, what the fuck? Well, when you live in a small city, shit like this is easier. <laughs> you know, you either go to one of four high schools Either you're from the west or the east side of El Paso. It's not that hard, you know? Like, I had met her in a certain part of the city. I had guessed that she was going to this high school. I asked some friends that were into that high school. Eventually, I, I fucking found her. And what preceded was the only time in my life where, like, life worked like in a movie. Because I, I courted this girl. I went and did all the things that you see that like a young man should do, especially as, uh, you know, I grew up on Pedro Infante movies and Pepe Aguilar movies, you know, and they always had like the suave Mexican charro. <laughs> you know, there's like a perfect gentleman, but also manly and like shoots a guy, but then like starts playing a, a song, you know, and a chance to win. <laughs> so I had this like ideal in my mind of what like romance should be. And it actually kind of worked out that way. You know, I, I, I did a lot of shit that you see in the movies. Like, I, I went to her house and I had to ask permission from her dad to date her at 15. And I was just like, sir, I, you know, I really like your daughter. What do you want me to say, you know? Um, but no, I had to do that. I, I would have to pick her up from her house. And we, we had a very beautiful, young, sweet relationship. We lost our virginity to each other. Like, yeah, no, everything worked out. <laughs> Thank, I love being clapped for being late. I appreciate that. <laughs> At least y'all know it's possible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but it, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that it was, it was very sweet and innocent. Like, and it wasn't right away either. Like, she made me wait almost nine months because again, we, we're, we're Mexican, we're, we're, we had that traditionalism, like traditionalism to us. And it was all very much as it needed to be on paper. But eventually, reality kicks in and you realize that you're only fucking 16 at this point. And you're already acting like if you're married to somebody and there's so much left to life to live. And eventually like, Shit broke down, naturally, I don't know. Like, very few people stay with their high school sweethearts, I feel, and that's okay. But what this gave me was a very unique start in my love life because I saw how sweet and beautiful love could be at a very young age. Like, I, I truly, at 15, I truly, truly, truly fucking thought I was gonna marry this girl. Like, for real, I was like head over heels over her. And then the other thing was, that I, was a, I was a very innocent boy at this point. And she was like, <laughs> she was a little bit crazier than I was. <laughs> no, in all the best ways. <laughs> my, my first sexual experience was me like climbing through her window 
to like, you know, reach her bedroom and then like hiding under the bed while the dad came in because he heard noise, you know? Like, she was a bad girl, bro. Like, she showed me some shit about life, okay? No, but it was, it was amazing. Um, and it, like I said, eventually shit broke down. I grew up, she grew up. We're friends now. And, but anyway, we, uh, we had different relationships, but what that gave me fundamentally is that I kept believing that love like that could exist. I kept believing that I could have those magical moments, even after my first relationship, which was very innocent and immature and young, failed completely because I was young and stupid. <laughs> but I kept believing in that. I kept believing that love could be sweet. And I'm not gonna lie to you, sometimes I do wish, sometimes I do wish that somebody could have warned me how lonely of a place love could be. But because I, I always believed in that, because I had that first beautiful relationship and have maintained that standard throughout my life, I've had some very beautiful experiences with very beautiful people. And I'm not here trying to say like, hey guys, I've been late a lot. No, like, <laughs> that's, that's not what I've been trying, what, what, sometimes. No, but what I'm trying to say is that I've had experiences that have been worth it. I've had beautiful fucking moments that I don't think I would have had if I wasn't stubbornly attached to this helpless romanticism that I've been attached to since I was about 15. And sometimes, like, like I said, like, we still talk, we're friends, kinda, <laughs> kinda, <laughs> sometimes. Um, but I still have a lot to thank her for because I think that my love life will have progressed a lot differently if these values and these things that I'm stubbornly attached to didn't exist. And so nowadays, that I'm older and I've, I've had a few more relationships and I've, <laughs> I've really fucked some of them up. <laughs> like really bad. Um, because I'm not easy to be with, I'm not gonna lie to y'all. To the ladies in the crowd, beware. <laughs> I am not easy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, like I said, I've, I feel that although in the games of love, I've been very bad. I've also been very lucky. And if I want to really wrap this up with anything is that all those experiences have really shown me, and this has been a theme in a lot of my stories, if y'all have been here for that, is that fantasy can exist and can coexist with reality. There are people out here, they will make you stare at them a little bit too long for whatever reason or that nights will seem like, there's some nights in my life, and even though these women are not part of my life anymore, or be, it might have ended wrongly, or I may have messed up, or they, maybe they messed up, but despite all that, those nights are unforgettable. And they made me into the man I am today. They made me into the lover I am today. And that shit has been fucking powerful for me. Because, you know, 
we go, I think we all go through life searching for a certain feeling and it may be different for all of us. You know, some people need to get nurtured. Some people, like if you're like me, you need to be excited. Um, there's other people that love to fight for whatever the fuck reason, but they do exist. Some of my best friends are those people. Um, but I think true love does exist. Because it, it is, it, it's in those nights that you never forget. It's in those nights that change everything about how you look at every person that comes after. It's in those nights where I said, like, just like I said, you look at that person a little bit too long and you don't know why. Or the idea of a person keeps you up at night. And, you know, I'm not saying all these stories end well. Because <laughs> they don't. <laughs> not a lot of them. But... It's part of the beautiful part of human existence. And yeah, I've been burned a lot. And there's still a lot I need to learn. <laughs> and there's a lot of mistakes that uh, could have been better. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't change those nights for anything in, the li and, like, anything in my life. Those nights where I shared with somebody else and they're almost a secret because only you and them know how fucking special of a night that was and the magical fantasy that imbued itself into that reality at that moment. Holy shit. <laughs> no, I mean, for real. And so when I was uh, thinking about the story and how I wanted to go about it, that's really... What kept coming up in my mind is like, yeah, sometimes it sucks, but the beauty you see when you're in love, love itself, like a, a true connection with somebody, whatever it may be, even if it's a one night stand. No, I mean, for real, I've had them. <laughs> like, even if it's like something that may seem meaningless, but if you remember that shit, and that shit becomes part of your life and who you are. What else do you want from true love? That being said, I need a girl to ruin my life. Applications are open. I love you all, thank you so much. Uncle Scotchy, thank you. And uh, you know, I'll be back here soon. <laughs> Kevin Robert, ladies and gentlemen. The human hallmark card, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> give it up for his hair as well, ladies and gentlemen, please. Give it up for Robert's hair. Thanks to all the storytellers that are here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. That was awesome. You never know what you're going to get. Sometimes it's going to be sad. Sometimes it's going to be good. Sometimes it's going to be a Hallmark card with the music in it. <laughs> no, thank you, man. That was awesome. Thank you. It's a storytelling veteran, ladies and gentlemen. Check out the, the podcast if you get a chance. People keep coming every Wednesday. Uh, I'm telling the story. I'm, I'm retelling the story about my mods. I haven't told it in about six months. And, and, and it's, a, it's a big one and a tough one for me. I'm, I'm trying to craft it. And uh, I didn't want to tell something again 
But, you know, these stories, you know, as I'm a musician, so I'm realizing a lot of these stories are kind of like songs. There's pacing, there's a lot of timing, there's things you can add and subtract. So if you heard it before, I appreciate if you if you listen again. I made Alexa uh, cry twice now, so I'm looking for the trifecta on uh, next Wednesday if you can make it. But uh, there's some great storytellers, and 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 hit me up on IG at uh, um, uh, Uncle Scotchy at Uncle Scotchy. And if you have some friends that want to tell stories, it doesn't matter if they're comics, housewives, whatever. Everybody's got a fucking story. And if you are brave enough to come up and tell it, I'm not going to ask you what it's about or anything. It just has to be true, and it has to be about you. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you guys soon. I'll see you guys next week. Take care.